0: Welcome to the Warrior U Podcast with your host, Bram Connolly. Join Bram as he uncovers what is to be a modern-day warrior on and off the battlefield, covering such topics as human performance, emotional intelligence, resilience, mental toughness, epigenetics, neuroplasticity, philosophy, and much, much more. Warrior U, it's the performance advantage. And don't forget to check out Mentors for Military Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Warrior You. If you're anything like me, then you see yourself as a life's work. I see myself as a project that can be changed, tweaked, and developed through motivation and education. I'm in the pursuit of simply being better than yesterday. If you do think like that, then this podcast is for you. Righto, let's dive in and see who we have as a guest today. So today on the podcast, I don't have a guest. Well, I do have a guest, but not in the traditional sense of the, the name guest. It's uh, Rhys Dewar. And Reese and I spent most of uh, my career together, the latter half especially as an officer. He was also my platoon sergeant in Timor when I was a patrol commander in the reconnaissance platoon. And then we went on to serve in the tactical assault group for a number of years together. And then in another unit as well. So our careers have always sort of been around each other's careers and I thought rather than me ask myself questions from you on Instagram that I'd get Reese to ask the questions and then for him to put his two cents worth in as well. I hope you enjoy the format of this and I think we're going to do a few more of these in the future, Uh, one on combat, uh, one on leadership and also on high-performing teams. Enjoy. I've got a heap of questions here from people on on Instagram and rather than sit there and type away and get rsi of the thumbs thought i'd just answer it over a podcast and it was going to be really boring me listening to myself ask myself questions <laughs> so thought i'd do what i always do and lean on you
1: yeah no drums at all brother it's well fi- i suppose let's dive straight into it i mean the first question's from greg what do special forces use the m4 variant and the regular infantry use the style which is a very interesting
0: question. Yeah, I hope I do this justice anyway. Jump in, mate, if you have to. So I guess it's a question a lot of people ask, right? It's not just the – it's important to note that the Styr is not just the regular infantry's weapon. It's the whole ADF's weapon, actually. So the styre is the Australian Rifle for Personal Protection across the ADF. It's also the main personal weapon for the Infantry Corps. In recent years, there's been some – Good work done to modernise what is a tired old rifle, believe it or not. Has an addition of a railing system, it's got better sight options, 40 millimeter grenade launcher. Okay, with that said, I suppose I should diverse a little bit. You and I learned to shoot with an SLR, me back in 1991, you a few years before that. And it, it weighed what felt like a ton, you know, to a 17-year-old kid. It certainly kicked more than the rifles I'd been brought up with on, you know, in the country. Then the styre came along. Uh, I remember thinking how it was awesome at the time, comfortable, accurate. Oh, and we could carry more ammunition too, right? It was a lighter weight 5.56, five, so we could carry a lot more ammunition, which straight away is a, a capability building block, you know. Probably didn't have the punching power that the 7.62 had, but again, that's contentious in some other areas that it's let down on. So I carried this weapon as a Ford Scout uh, in Tully on exercises out in higher range, and then in Somalia on operations as well in 1993. So I carried it operationally, actually. I also did my selection course with it and the first few years as a commando, I carried it as well. It wasn't until, you will remember this race, 2001, that we were issued M16s and we took them on operations over to Timor. We were very lucky. That thing was massive and cumbersome as well. If I'm honest, I didn't like it. I didn't like it as much as the style, to be fair. It was pretty crap. And there were old versions of the M16 as well. Okay, I better answer the question. I guess the M4 is not made in Australia. We don't have the patent to make it here. There's some protectionism issues with American armament companies happening. So it's more expensive for us to purchase each unit than it is to make an EF-88 ef, EF styre. It's a weapon we've paid for the patent and it wouldn't be cost effective to kit out the whole ADF at the price that it costs to purchase an M4. The wider defence force requires a simple, effective produced weapon, a simple variant for self-defence and we have the patent to make the styre right here in Australia in Lithgow. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. which is probably also a legislative requirement, I would assume, for defence capability and acquisition. So I would, I would think that it's probably more to do with the need for the very most basic rifle to be made for self-protection across the ADF, and that is the Steyr. Actually, it's not a it's not a bad rifle. It suits the Ar- wider army needs. Would it be better to have everyone with a one rifle? Yeah, it would. It's not a perfect world. All right, and then answering that, why don't the SF just have the Steyr? To make it the same across the adf well the m4 is better for soldiers who will probably be engaged in close quarter battle to be fair it's a far better rifle rifle in my opinion it's a lot easier to remain behind cover while firing from either shoulder something that you and i had to do a lot i mean imagine you're inside a door or behind a rock wall or between car bodies and because it isn't a bullpup system the magazine changes occur right in front of your line of sight as well whereas with the bullpup, you have to actually dip your head down and you're no longer looking towards a threat. might not sound like much, but in close combat, that's a pretty big deal. And you yeah, go through... If I can just... yeah, yeah, go
1: on. Project. I remember, I don't know if you remember, mate, but both me and you were involved in the um, upgrades to the Star yeah. um, back in the early 2000s, and we were talking about that very thing of a magazine change, and this is one of the things I remember we brought up in regards to magazine change in combat, Obviously, in close combat, it has to be quick. Mm. That's, uh, one of the advantages, I think, of the M4 is it's a single-handed magazine release. With mm. the star, still, you still need to use uh, double-hand manipulation mm. to actually take the magazine off.
0: Yes, yeah, so it won't just drop easy. out.
1: Yeah, and I remember yeah. we did a test, and, and back in those days, we were doing mag chains in about 0.5 of the second, mm. where with the Steyr, it was taking 1.5 to 2 seconds. Is that right? To make a mag change. Yeah, right. And you know as well as I do, mate, in combat, that's a lifetime.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't just with one hand dump a magazine, jam another one in there and, I mean, don't even worry about the bold assist, just keep cracking on, I guess. So it's not an easy question to answer because there's lots of variables ranging from price to politics, you know, yeah, needs and requirements. yeah
1: all the rest of it.
0: yeah. But but primarily, I guess it comes down to the fact we don't have the patent to make it in Australia, so we go with two different variations because it's cost-effective.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And I think when you have a look at the roles and tasks of, of the infantry or the wider army compared to special forces, mm. you know, that that allows us to get certain specific weapons for tasks. Right. Where a bigger army doesn't have that luxury, I mm. suppose, mm. Um, mm. to do that. And, um, you know, it's a lot easier to you know, if I'm honest, you know, field a unit of, you know, four hundred and fifty, maybe five hundred shooters across both regiments instead of, you know, I think the army numbers are up to around fifty two like thousand mark these days.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they're cool. I think we've I think we've put that to bed. Yeah. Right, okay, next question.
1: All right, next one is from have we got a name there? No, I don't think we do. But anyway, the question is if you've passed the commando selection and have been in the unit, and I'm assuming that's uh, the commando units, do you still have to do the SASR selection course?
0: Oh, God. All right. Short answer is yes. Longer answer. All right. They're different units, different roles and tasks. Some training has overlap, like a basic para course, a roping course, CQB course in some regards, and some of the courses don't have overlap. If a Commando wants to go to SASR, they still need to be selected against the unique assessing requirements looked at to make sure there'll be a good cultural fit. That means doing the SASR card course, in my mind, and it, it should work both ways, or at least it it should. Now, <laughs> I've been out of the game long enough for things to have changed too, and that and I think that's probably thought given across, you know, training more training across the units. So I, I would have think I would have thought that that's what's come out of this cultural review anyway. In fact, we ran a couple of joint selections back in the 90s, late 90s, which I think seemed fairly positive for everyone that was involved, and then we went away from it for some reason, which perhaps that was the start of things going a little bit awry between the two units, I'm not sure. But a basic starting selection makes sense to me in some ways. It's always evolving. I'm probably not the best person to answer this really accurately, to be honest. What do you think?
1: I think it's it's an evolution thing. It's uh, one of those things where... If we have a look at um, Special Boat Service and 22 SAS, I mean, they do a combined selection. Uh, and then depending on whether you're... Well, it doesn't depend on whether you're a big army or not, whether you're a Royal Marine or you're, you know, a para in the British regi- uh, parachute Regiment, parachute regiments or one of the British regiments. You still have that choice. I've heard of a number of guys that have gone from being a bootneck or a Royal Marine across to 22 SAS. But generally, you know, SBS guys are raw marines. Mm. You know, it's the way they go. With us, I think it it comes down to roles, tasks and responsibilities, I think. And I think you're right. I mean, you know better than me, mate. You used to run selections. So I think it's just roles and tasks, you know. Does it it flip both ways? No, it doesn't. Should it? Yeah, I think it should. But uh, that's, you know, that's up to the gods. That's not up to us.
0: Yeah, it's fair enough. I think... Yeah, I don't really want to get drawn into it too much, but I think there's a little bit of lack of leadership there over the years, where it could have been, there could have been some better delineation between roles and tasks, or where there was crossover, have that identified, yeah. and then and then. Look,
1: and you know, with the current environment, who knows, you hmm. know, what the future will bring in regards to the selection process.
0: Either way, awesome dudes in both units, you know, warriors doing their thing. Like, so yeah, hopefully they get better supported. Righto, next question.
1: Oh, geez, this is a tough one, mate. Mm. Um, Grant, do you ever age?
0: <laughs> no. Next question.
1: No, you've got to explain why you don't age, mate.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of broccoli, water. <laughs> Next question.
1: You keep, you keep yourself well. Yeah, that's it. Good life, good family, good friend. Number four, what have we got here? No name with this one either, but... Uh, Does becoming an infantry officer require completion of year 12? Or are there other methods to becoming an officer?
0: Yeah. All right. Obviously, this question here, this person could have researched themselves. Lazy piece of shit. Just joking. Seriously, though. So part of the preparation for ADF is actually that you do some of this research, organizing your own files, going to appointments, doing the legwork. You know what I mean? actually doing that stuff anyway a quick answer to this so to be eligible for entry into RMC you need to be between 17 53 years old you need to have completed year 12 with acceptable results in at least four subjects including English so that's that up front now the, the second part of that question and this is interesting because you and I are both sitting here yeah there's other ways to become an infantry officer without having year 12 similar to the way that I did this by going through the ranks however, that's years in the making and it's also not something that you generally go into the army planning to do. It's opportunity and self-development. And also it's not that common to end up, I guess, in in my instance, as a platoon commander when you've gone through the ranks. In fact, I think that's actually pretty rare to have not gone to RMC and then gone to Afghanistan as a platoon commander. And then, Reese, you know, yourself, you changed over after being a company sergeant major a couple of times and then and then did the full six years as well as a captain, you know. So you, you know, you, you were up against it. So the, as the two of us were. So it's it is a fairly rare thing to do the way we did it, and I wouldn't ad, I wouldn't advise that unless you're in the military already and you're a sergeant and you're sergeant or warrant officer and reasonably young and thinking about another ten years in the military. If you're thinking about being an officer, then you should be setting yourself up for success in high school, doing year twelve either going to ad for or getting some life experience and then going to RMC. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm. Alright. What do you got man
1: All right mate, um we've got question five.
0: This Challenge me. All right.
1: Hey Brad, just a quick question about a career in the ADF. I'm 21, completed my CERT 3 sheet metal fabrication and currently working for my father with the ambition of taking over the reins The dilemma I currently face is what I will miss out on if I take that path and not the ADF one. Completed a U session, I assume that's a warrior U session, when I was 19, but they recommended I finish my trade first. Okay, no, that's not a warrior U session. No. I consider myself an adrenaline junkie and very adventurous, hence why the ADF has lured me from right. the run.
0: Yep, no worries. So the, the U session he's referring to is the Your Opportunities Unlimited session. That's a thing they do reset recruiting now. So it lets you know what what pathway you can take. So I've actually reached out to Dion and talked to him direct, but we discussed me putting it on here as well so that some other people might benefit from it. So it was a tough life question. It's not just about the ADF, obviously. Obviously there's an adult conversation that has to take place between Dion and his dad here. And if his dad's amenable to it, you know, I've said to him why not look at applying for SFDRS, a special forces direct recruiting scheme. That way if he's successful, then he can he can do all the SF training, spend eighteen months becoming qualified, perhaps then four years in the unit, then be back taking over the business at the completion of his time. You know, so he gets in, gets out, does his thing. But things change though, right? Because it's addictive, it pulls you in for the long term. And he needs to remember that because leaves the business, goes in there, he's not coming out again once he once he starts, you know, jumping out of aircraft, doing fast driving, you know, climbing, skiing, all the good stuff. So it's a you know really that question is a, a deeply personal question for him to answer.
1: Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Question six. This is from Corey Bram, referring to your last post. If I were to join, say, the Navy and join as a maritime warfare officer, would, if at all, be possible to come across two special forces selection with adequate physical and mental training, or would the lack of army training or anything alike out?
0: What do you reckon, Reese?
1: Look, I think um, no, it doesn't. That's why special forces selection is tri-service. I mean, you can be army, navy, and air force. What I would say, though, I mean, that's a, a pretty staunch path to take, being a, a maritime warfare officer. And generally, that training alone is is quite arduous, and it takes up time. Yeah. Generally, maritime warfare officers spend a lot of time on a ship. You know, uh, what I would say would be if you're really looking at something like that, you know, the Navy has their own, let's say, not designated special forces, but special operations forces in regards to the clearance diver teams. Mm. So he was already in the Navy and obviously physically and mentally prepared, give the CDTs a crack. In saying that, we know a lot of uh, clearance diver team members that have actually Gone to CDTs and then moved across and did selection for yeah. both units, yeah. uh, both commandos yeah, and SASR, and have been quite successful.
0: Yeah, some good dudes in that.
1: Mm. Yeah, there are. You know, so no, it's definitely not out of the realm. Just because you're not in the army, you know, to a, to a certain extent, it is probably at your advantage, Corey, because what it allows us to do is have a look at a clean slate and then build you around what needs to be built. Uh, A problem with a lot of Army guys is it's assumed knowledge already and they don't have it half the time. So we really have to – you've really got a blank slate to work off if you come from uh, Navy and Air Force. And I know a number of people, so does Bram, that have been quite successful.
0: Yeah, I agree, mate. I mean, land navigation, minor team tactics is probably a weak point, but nothing that can't be overcome. Giving orders too is a little bit different. Small team orders delivery is a lot more prescriptive and requires a, a mix of leadership and flair. But it's something you can, you know, like smear and stuff like that. Stuff you can learn. It's another one of those questions where you either, you either give it a crack or you you go to something that's the next best fit and probably just as enjoyable.
1: Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. Moving on to question seven, I've got no name associated with this one, but a Tay brand. I was just wondering uh, what some good ways are to tone up. And do you know any ways to improve mental health before joining? That? Yeah, the recent Thai cave rescue has me thinking about being a CD on clearance diver, I would assume, or something along those lines. Thanks.
0: Yeah, right. Well, the Warrior U PT program answers both of these concerns. Improve mental health. I don't like the term mental health. I like mental fitness. But anyway, that's just me. You know, I think Reese Dowden's got a pretty good, pretty good program going where. People can become tougher by doing his his program. From what I've seen of it, it's um and from what I've heard as well, it's it's really good. So that's worth a look. Reese Dowden, check him out.
1: Yeah, it is good. I can I can vouch for Reese.
0: You know, it with regards to toning up, you know, like if you're not if you're not under too much of a pump, then you know, use <laughs> inverted comms. Go to go to CrossFit, start doing CrossFit or high intensity interval training, and there's plenty of that on the Warrior U website for people to people to have a look at.
1: Can I I just add something there? And and it goes down to uh, mental health, mental fitness, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And it's an interesting question because you're talking about good ways to tone up. So you're actually asking the question, you know, what is a good way to tone up? Well, a good way of doing anything is getting up early in the morning and getting on the track and then putting in the hours. If you're able to do that, whoever this uh, individual is, you will build your mental resilience just simply by doing that. Yeah, Simply getting up at 5.30 in the morning and doing that run, doing that training session, that'll build mental resilience.
0: Yeah, it's like a friend of mine, you know, how to get tougher, just get tougher.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. How to become good at fighting, fight.
0: Mm. All <laughs> right, what's next?
1: No worries, what do we got? So we've got uh, question eight now. Uh, this is from Drew. Hey, Brian. Thank you for taking the time to answer questions. I've got a couple of questions. How much more should someone focus their training on endurance as opposed to strength, mm. which is the first question. Do you want to answer that first, mate? We'll move on to the second
0: one. Yeah, right. You know, we used to have a one of our OCs who's a good dude, actually, really good bloke. He used to say to us, don't worry about being fit, you know, train to be tough. And we, when we first went to the on the CT team, we used to train like 400-meter runners. So we do explosive weight sessions, sprint sessions, and they would be one and a half, two hour sessions every day, sometimes twice a day, depending on what you're doing. And then obviously you're running through the kill house all day or carrying someone or doing something that a lot of people probably wouldn't even understand the fitness sort of adaptations that come with running in a gas mask up and down stairs all day. And so, slowly over time, you would build up endurance anyway. But I, I find that if you're, for me, it works for me specifically is high intensity interval training, at speed and explosive training is strength training. So things like thrusters, you know, deadlifts, squats, front squats especially, and then sprints on the rower, sprints when you're swimming, sprints when you're running, you know, all of that is strength training. But if you're doing it long enough, it builds your. It helps build up an endurance. I mean, when, we, when we're talking about endurance, talking about job-specific, not talking about being an Ironman triathlete where you need to be able to ride for or be in an event for 10 hours, you know, that takes a specific type of endurance. But the military takes a different type of endurance. And, you know, like wearing a pack for long periods of time, you don't have to wear a pack for long periods of time to be able to carry a pack for long periods of time. You just need to be strong. Thoughts? Yes,
1: agree Continuing on uh, with the same individual, is it necessary to have an infantry background, especially considering the vast majority of them, and I'm assuming them meaning special forces, uh, are ex-infantry?
0: So first of all, commandos are infantry. So unless it has changed, uh, a commando is going to do, a guy from another corps is going to do the advanced infantry training or, or some sort of a bridging course to become infantry. SAS is different although they become infantry corps, but they're not required to have their core ECN as infantry. Is that right? Something along those lines. I might check that out and put it in in the notes. You know, it certainly helps to be ex-infantry, but some of the best guys I've seen have been signalers and truckies. and I mean, I had a sergeant for a while there that was a catering corps sergeant from the regiment. So, no, you just have to be awesome. Just basically train hard. You know, understand what it is that you're getting yourself into, and you know, I mean, everyone's a soldier first anyway. So just because if you're infantry, it just means that you're a more specialised soldier. I, I I suppose, I assume that's what you know. So yeah, you're a soldier first anyway. So you should be you should be good at being a soldier, and then it's just an extra natural extension then.
1: Yeah, and I think another you know add on to that question or that answer is that generally the infantry is the biggest arms corps within army and that's why we have so many numbers i mean we have more battalions than we do tank drivers and all the rest of it right. artillerymen. so and i think you know as you've already stated it, it builds those basic foundations mm. that we can you know grow and improve on where you come from other corps, not not saying that that's a bad thing it's not a bad thing you know it's open to all core and all services but there's a level of training there that is extra yeah you know, than what the uh, infantry guys do who come from the battalions. Yeah. that's a question. Uh, what, <laughs> that's an interesting one. What weight are most guys doing selection as? <laughs> what weight are most guys doing selection as? <laughs> that's, a, yeah, right. Okay, I'm, I assume he means <laughs> body weight
2: yeah.
1: uh, when you get to selection. Uh, I mean, I'll start this off, mate, and give you a bit of a rest. But it's not about weight. It's about the individual. Mm. Um. each individual is different you know height you know some are small some are short some uh, carry a little bit more weight i think you know what what the question is there would be what is the optimum weight that an individual would do selection as doesn't exist yeah. and once again it's it's individual based doesn't exist um, mm. you know there's there's been guys that have been 100 kilos 110 kilos that haven't gotten through selection there's guys that have been um, fifty
0: kilos. You want to be in good condition, obviously.
1: Yeah, and yeah, I think that's what it. it comes
0: down Doesn't to. Matter. It's
1: not about weight, no. it's about condition.
0: Although having said that, you need to be able to carry the weight and you need therefore you you know, I did I did SAS selection in nineteen ninety four, I think it was, or maybe early ninety five, as a sixty two kilogram hundred and seventy three centimeter sixty two kilogram nineteen year old, and that was not optimal. You probably want to be about eighty kilo to carry a sixty kilo pack. <laughs> yeah, you
1: know, and you you know this as well as I do, mate. I think it comes down to strength. Of, uh, what is it? Um, the strength weight ratio. Mm, 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 you know, mm, and that's yeah. the old you know being able to push, being able to pull, being able to lift your own body weight. And you know, I still use that today. Whether yeah. I can do it or it's a different story. But I still use it as a gauge.
0: Yeah. No, got it, mate. Right. What else we got?
1: It's, yeah, a bit of a flow on one thing during selection that you don't prepare for, that is the question.
0: Standing on the Quadrangle and Lithgow in the snow for two and a half hours with a torsion bar above your head? That, that, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> but then again, it's the things that you're not ready for that make it worthwhile.
1: Yeah, and look, I, I look at that question. it's quite an interesting question because it's obviously everyone wants to know about selection before they go and do selection. But the problem with selection is it changes.
0: Yeah. I've I've ran a selection and I couldn't, I couldn't go there completely armed with all the knowledge to pass selection other than knowing that I'd have to just be fucking tough. You're not going to get all the answers, certainly not from someone who's the OC selection in 2007. So, yeah.
1: And, and, and you know, one, one I always use, men you use, have used and men you've talked about is, you know, to be selected, you have to be there at the end.
0: Oh, well, a friend of ours used to say, a guy who used to work for me actually, he was a bloody brilliant warrant officer in SFTC, in the Special Forces Training Center, he used to say, the only thing certain about selection is if you don't apply, you won't be accepted.
1: <laughs> That's pretty much it.
0: Thank you, Brad. Very good.
1: I, I think it's a follow-on from the, the last question. One thing you wish you had prepared more for. And I, I, once again, I go back to it's very hard to prepare for the
0: unknown. Oh, I see what he's saying. Yeah, so what didn't, you, what didn't you prepare for? And then one thing you wish you'd prepped more for. You know what? For me, perhaps some more, and I came from a recon background, um, so my navigation was was strong. And I'd done the sniper pre-selection back in the unit as well. But I think for me, uh, a little bit more mapped to ground so that I could not waste so much time planning my nav legs during the 24-hour nevex because I was maybe a little bit too reliant on making sure my bearings were exactly right on, whereas some of the guys, the the snipers especially, would just pull a map out, do a quick appreciation, and then they were off. And and time is bloody money when you're doing a 24-hour nevex because you need that time to recover at the end of it. That's probably one thing, looking back on it, that I would prepare for a bit more.
1: Yeah, excellent. Okay, thanks, Drew. That's, um, some A lot of questions there out of your bucket list. But so no dramas at all, mate. Okay, the next one, Bram, is from uh, callsign Charlie Golf. Okay. Interesting. He's a
0: Warrior you uh, guy. Hey,
1: mate, if you had one or two top tips for selection preparation, what would it be?
0: Mm. Yep, no worries. This is easy. First things first is make sure your kit, is a hundred percent sorted out and comfortable, that your boots are worn in, that all your gear works under duress, that means not in your not in your room, in your house or the lines, but that you've actually worn it for a for a run, you've worn it for a walk, you've worn it out in the field, the stuff works. You know where everything is in it because there's gonna you're gonna have three days worth of deprivation at some stage or more. And you wanna be able to do you want to be able to get stuff instinctively without having to put too much effort into it. That's probably the first one. And then the next one. Don't have anything to come back to. You know, I don't mean cut ties with all your mates, punch them all in the face, go and tell the RSM he's a flog before you walk out the door. What I mean by that is visualise yourself passing it at the end. Don't don't visualize yourself with a career in the in the old unit you've left. Give yourself no reason, no cushy reason to come back because you're about to you're about to be a big fish you were a big fish in a small pond you're about to become a small fish in a big pond you can if you've got rank that rank's going to be taken off you if you've got you know if you are the dog squad leader that doesn't count for shit you're basically going to front up at that line with everyone else and you're about to be running around metaphorically naked they're going to break you down they're going to see what makes you what makes you the person that you are and at some point your true personality is going to come out and if that true personality is ready to go back and be the platoon sergeant of reconnaissance platoon in the battalion, well, you've got an easy job to fall back to. Give yourself nothing.
1: Well, mate, the next one's uh, from Dylan. I'm not sure if you've gotten this before, but when you joined the Defence Force, whenever it was and wherever you joined, how did your family process it and how uh, was it hard leaving your family and friends behind? And I think you just answered that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly the same. Like... I am but then again you and I both we've talked about this we both knew when we're going through high school that we were going to join the military and most people just know so if you're that person and you just know then back yourself and just do it okay now if you're older and you're SFDRS and you've got a wife and kids and stuff like that you need to put some planning into place for sure but if you're a 17 year old kid in year 11 like I was fucking back yourself and do it but if you're you know, if you've got other things holding you back, then you need to be able to compartmentalise that and move on for the, for the period of time that you have to do it.
1: Uh, mate, this is the last question we've got for today, and this is from Murph. Uh, hey, Bram, I'm a big fan of yours. Me too. Um, you wouldn't have heard that before, mate, so, you know, bask in the sunset then. It's, nice, so it to, love to it's hear nice to hear it. I'm <laughs> in year 12 at the minute and will mm. politics, media at University of Melbourne mm. uh, next year while doing the part-time commander entry scan. If I get through, uh, I'll go full-time soon as I finish my degree, serve a few years, and then go elsewhere. In honesty, I'm not really sure what to expect for both the selection process and special courses lifestyle. Are there any tips you'd have for me? Thanks heaps, Murph.
0: So anyway, thanks, Murph. Good name, by the way. I like that name. Okay, well, I mean, first and foremost, Murph's got to just crack on and do uni, really. I wouldn't personally the part-time commando entry scheme has just as much liability as any other aspect to SFDRS or or full-time commando so he's obviously a reservist did he say he was a reservist
1: no well i think he's yeah he leads to say he is a reservist part-time commando entry scheme i don't exactly know what that is this does
0: yeah i mean what i do know is that you know with with the old role of round out reinforce, rotate between the, com- the commando reserves and the full time unit there's no there's nowhere to be doing that as a part time person you're either you're you're almost 90% committed to that job and then you have a, a supplementary job on the side or or you're a previous special forces guy and you've transferred across to the reserves in all honesty that's not something i'd be looking at but then again, I don't know, I, I don't want to take recruits away from the reserve units. Tough. Yeah,
1: I think, you know, I, I look at his uh, his question there and I think, you know, he's, he's in a split mind. He's, you know, he's talking about, you know, his year 12, his university degree, commando entry. I mean, this guy's a busy dude by the looks of things already. And then on top of that, he's, he's worrying about, I mean, you know, what go selection to, Go to ADFA. Are. Special Forces go to Adfa and
0: go to Adfa and do do a degree in Adfa.
1: Exactly right, and that's what I was about to throw in there. If he was if he was going to do that, if he's completing year twelve, apply for army now. Go to Adfa. Uh, I'm sure they do politics and, and media studies uh, at Adfa, and then and go from there. And that way, he's sponsored by army the whole time if he wants to do that. Look, just reading that question, I don't think he is. I don't think that's where his mind is because, as you've said before, mate. Mm. Uh, it is a mindset, and it's one of those things that you can't just one day um, wake up and go, "Gee, I'm going to do that," and then give yourself an out. You know, it's all that, always that thing is. You now, I refer it to I had a number of guys, you know, that when they'd get um, you know, withdrawn off selection, you'd ask them why. You know, mm. a couple would turn around and go, "Oh, you know, well, I've got a girlfriend at home, and she really didn't want me to do this anyway." Mm. You know, so it's not blaming the individual. It's actually blaming yeah. someone else for you not getting through, which is not a real good way to go at the start anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think you're right. He's, he's a bit all over the place, Murph. You've you, you got to hunker down and concentrate on what it is and identify exactly what it is you want to do, mate, and then crack on.
0: Yeah. Either back yourself. I, I mean, I, I, just looking at that, I, he should – I think he, the advice I would give him is to go to ADFA, do a degree there, you know, it's paid for, then you don't have any hex, go to RMC, become an, become an officer, Go, you know, something that might interest him, you know, engineering, infantry, artillery, whatever. Do a couple of years in the unit, you know, as a lieutenant, bloody great leadership experience, and then yeah. have a crack at either commandos or, or SASR. But making your life more complex. I mean, I would be interested to know why he's chosen – politics and media i mean i did Uh, politics at uni and I, you know international relations majoring in politics i can tell you now i'd rather have joined (laughs) Adva.
1: yeah look to to me mate reading the question a little bit more and all that kind of stuff Murph, it sounds like you've got a bucket list Mm. that's what it sounds like to me and you you, you're just ticking things off you know Uh, Um, that's not
0: going to work is it that's not going to
1: work no it's not going to work you know it's like uh part-time commander entry scheme, if I get through. Mm. I'll go full-time as soon as I finish my degree, serve a few years, Mm. and then go elsewhere.
2: Mm.
1: Well, you're only going to serve a few years. You're probably not not going to get into the unit the first time anyway because the unit's not about serving a few years. (laughs) It, It really is a lifestyle, and it really is a life change. And generally, people that go in there and look, Times have changed, you know. We're no longer in war, so that draws in a different type of person as well. Mm. Uh, you know, me and myself and Bram, you know, both served what we call the golden years, I suppose. We were, you know, in combat operations for 15 years uh, within the unit, mm. and that's no longer there. So that draws a different kind of individual. Mm. Um, but the thing I would, I, would, I would say about this question is that, you know, focus on that thing that you want to do and just go out and do it instead of making a list of things you'd like to do yeah. and tick them off.
0: Yeah. Agreed. That's all the questions. I mean, there was a heap of other ones, but that we pretty much answered those questions with these questions. Oh, someone asked how important it is to go to university before joining up and how much that will affect your army career. And if an effect was actually spelt properly. So that was good. Actually, you know, it's a great question. There's never a good time to study, and when you leave the army, there's evidence that you'll secure a better job with, with a degree behind you. You know, I mean I studied my undergraduate degree while in the army, while away on deployments, because I knew the benefit of a good education. I know you did a lot of study as well, mate. And I mean, it took me nearly ten years to finish my degree. I loved parts of it, I hated parts of it. Um, when I say ten years, I mean I did a degree with a double major and advanced diploma in business at the same time. So it was actually like I was perpetually studying and then in a re- leadership role as well. So. So I would say do university first if you want to do university because it was t- it was a tough bloody graph to be fair unless of course you haven't done year 12 and you hate school but have good enough grades to join the ADF in which case I'd say just join and maybe maybe consider studying later then because some people as they get older they find it easier to study than than some others you know yeah and either way just join because worrying about a career path later you know you can worry about studying later as well you can do either um, I usually say to, to candidates on the warrior U website if your life circumstances are such that you need a job, that is that you can't make ends meet or you're struggling to get it together and you know you want to join the ADF one day, like if, you, if you're looking to join the ADF, then I say just get your bloody foot in the door. Don't worry about what job you get told to have during your U session. Just just do something. And then immerse yourself in the culture of the ADF. Get a, getting a wage. It's easier to study if you are only prioritizing time as a resource and not money. So once you get in the ADF, you're in that culture, you've now got a paycheck, you're able to meet obligations, then you then the resource you're worrying about is the time resource, not the money and time resource. So I guess the questions, well, the answer to it is really specific to the individual and their life circumstances. But then again, that's why, mate, as you know, that's why we developed Worry You anyway, so that we can answer those specific individualised questions. Yeah, so for me, it was the right choice to join as a, 17 year old you know with year 11 and then go on to to doing what i did in a different way some guys would have joined adfa you know go on to rmc and they've ended up with exactly the same well not exactly but and in an, a career that's similar to mine and yours yeah hmm. anyway let's that yeah so you know that's pretty much all the questions but we've got like 10 minutes or so if you want to shoot the shit and people are probably driving their cars around and listening to us waffle crap so we can make out they're here with us and just talk about something they might be interested in what do you reckon everyone's interested in while they're driving around listening to the bram and Reese show
1: let's talk about a current event that just happened and it seems to be capturing news and it's a good it's a good it's a, it's a, a good feeling story which <clears> is the rescue of the um, 12 kids and their coach I think it was out of the caves in Thailand
0: go on yeah.
1: But look, those things, you know, my, my kids call the news at the moment the happy channel and not in a good way. Mm. And it was quite funny, you know, when my daughter said that to me and I was like, Why do you call it the, the happy channel? And she said, Because there's nothing happy about the news. Yeah. Now I find that, you know, that's that's unfortunate that we can't find those things in 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 the world that we can put on the news to build hope. Mm. Uh, build resilience, give a little bit of, oh, I don't know, happiness to people in the news. <laughs> I, knew the, I know the news concentrates a lot on, on bad stuff, but, hey, look, then all of a sudden you get a story like this one and, you know, whether whether the news went in there, went, went in there with the intent to bring back a bad luck story, look, it transpired and it became, you know, probably one of the, the best stories uh in recent times of survival
0: so you're 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 a diver i mean you're not just a diver either you're (laughs) fairly qualified in the realms of diving i won't list your bio here but (laughs) suffice to say you've had some experience in that sort of diving and i've been stuck behind you in the water inside a tunnel before so i so i know for a fact that it's not somewhere i want to be how complex was that dive yeah it
1: was very complex mate um and i think you know, having a look at way the rescuers in particular mm. managed the extraction of those individuals was phenomenal. Mm. Um, you know, when you look at the type of dangers you get in caves, and, I've, you know, I've done um, I've done cave diving. Um, it is quite extreme. That's what it is. You know, it's not for everyone. Uh, you know, different breathing apparatuses, which I might get into at the moment. But where I'm going with this is it, it, it reminded me of taking someone off the battlefield. Mm. You know, it's it's one of those things where one person goes down, that takes away six guys because it takes six guys to carry them off the battlefield. Mm. And that's exactly what happened in that cave. You know, you had had 12, 12 young guys that needed to be extracted. Mm. It took four divers per individual to get them out of that cave, and that's phenomenal, not to mention, you know, your buoyancy control that you have to go into for the divers so they don't uh, kick up silt or mud and soot. Off the bottom of the cave, and then get what we call a neutral buoyancy for the actual stretcher itself mm. that they had those rescued kids strapped to to get them out. Mm. So you know, for them to go through that, the time frame behind that, the restrictions that they had—what a great, what a great news story! The walls
0: the operations officer in me is just geeking out over the amount of whiteboards they must have had with uh, actions on and permutations of the plan, and yeah. I guess a lot of people at home would just be sitting there seeing a whole lot of dudes tethered to ropes moving people around, but actually it'd be a lot more intricate than that with with a whole lot of second, third-order effects being considered?
1: Oh, 100%, mate. It's just like any operation we've ever been on we've ever ran. There's a lot of planning and preparation goes into it, and the thing that I found fascinating about that, and I dare say there would have been a number of problems, they would have had a number of courses of action uh, going through their heads, but the time constraint, you know, the time constraint within that tunnel, the lack of air being pumped into that tunnel for survival, mm. you know, and as it was, I mean, the, uh, there was a uh, retired Thai Navy SEAL mm. who lost his life,
2: mm. yeah.
1: you know, and uh, he discovered them. And I don't know the circumstances behind that. There could be a number of issues. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's how dangerous it was when you get a, a top-tier guy Loses his life on a dive like that. Hmm. Um, who's a seasoned professional? You know the conditions are pretty rough.
0: Yeah, I don't watch the news. I, I mean, I, I just don't. I don't anymore. I'll get my news from the internet. If it's if I really if I hear something's going on, I'll look on the internet first. Usually, Twitter tells you about something four or five hours before any of the news channels are reporting it. And I find it's depressing. You know, yeah, certainly, I certainly stopped watching current affairs programs about. Ten years ago, I don't watch any of that garbage because it's all it's all designed about. Well, it just dep- it just depresses the shit out of me. And 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 I might watch ABC News in the morning, the twenty four hour news channel, for um, 15, 20 minutes to get the headlines. You know, just before I go and work out or something. But I don't don't tend to watch the news.
1: Yeah, no, and, and mate, I'm so with you. I mean, it takes a lot for us to watch the news these days. And I know we used to work on the premises. If if it's not one of us telling our families or it's not the unit telling the families, then it didn't happen. Mm. But, you know, just listening to that story and what came out and those young kids surviving along with the rescuers as well, phenomenal story, gives hope that, you know, if you're ever in a bind or anything like that, there are good people out there that are going—they're willing to do good things and, and you know, taking into consideration a lot of those guys were volunteers as well that will, you know, get out there and, and help you out.
0: Yeah, I want to ask you... What- you know, America has that, the whole, I don't want to get into the gun culture debate because you and I have some probably differing and also the same points of view on different things. So I don't want to get into that, but we don't have this culture in Australia of excellence in like, not just the security industry, but, you know, I follow these people on Instagram who are these US SF dudes and Delta guys and CAGs, and I guess some of them are celebrities, some of them aren't but you know they're out there training on the range on the weekend doing doing workouts that involve their shooting or you know shoot move communicating type stuff. We don't have any of that sort of excellence from a tactical perspective. Like you don't see our I mean I'm sure I'm sure the TRG and all those sort of different different groups around Australia have that inbuilt into them, but you don't see the personal, the individual, you know, the civilian out there saying this is how I'm going to train for you know if something happens to me here's my here's what I here's what I train on the weekends you know throwing around these bags and these balls and doing BJJ and, and working with my dog to train my dog or you know this is how I'm fixing my house you know we're certainly not in the prepper state like America's as a lot of Americans are but we also don't have that USSF sort of influence through the population which is like you know prepare yourself for something traumatic you know yeah look I
1: think like you know it's it's all cultural isn't it I mean Australia predominantly doesn't live on a culture of guns or a society that's, that's like that where the US, you know, are heavily involved in that, i.e. the Constitution and the Second Amendment, I think it is, you know, so it's what they, you know, they've written their history on, basically. Mm. We haven't had guns, you know, but we're saying that we, our gun laws are still there, you know, we, we still have, we still have the right to bear arms, if you want to use that term, you know. Well not really. Uh, but our, our processes and uh, and the rules.
0: I mean, you can't you can't conceal carry in Australia.
1: Yeah, sorry, what was that?
0: You can't conceal carry in Australia.
1: Well you can if you have the relevant licence and that's the thing. You know. Know, um And and that's one of those things. I mean, what I would look at, everything I I look at when it comes to weapons, and you know this as well as I do, mate, is the level of proficiency of training that is being conducted for the licensing of that individual.
0: Yeah, I mean, there'd be very few people with a CPP licence that are cruising around with concealed carry.
1: No, none in Australia.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, I'm I'm not going to go down to, you know, Woolworths down in bloody Subiaco carrying my Glock. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I mean, look, I, I had an interest I would have at, I could. Um, working with the Commonwealth Games Committee, and um, it was a uh, cash and transit officer, mm. okay, who was coming to get all his passes at one of the venues I was managing, and uh, the funny thing was he walked in with a pistol, mm. uh, and I had to go and see him and say, mate, what are you doing? Mm. You know, and the funny thing was, it wasn't, I wasn't worried about him. What I was worried about was the individuals around him
2: mm.
1: because as soon as anyone sees a gun in Australia, uh, and there's a bit of a story, it's a gun in Australia, everyone turns in and looks. Mm. It's like identifying a threat. It's a big neon sign on an individual, mm. you know, and that's what got my attention. And then when I looked over, this dude's dressed in black. He's got, you know, he's got a thigh rig on, which is way too low. He shouldn't have been bloody wearing it in the first place. Uh, and I went up there and said, what are you doing, mate? Why are, you, why are you carrying a pistol? He was just like, oh, I'm a cash and transit officer. And I said, yeah, I understand that. I said, but are you on the job at the moment? They went, oh, no, but my truck's out the, out the side. And I said, well, okay. So go and put your weapon in your truck. Bloody hell. Why do you need to carry that in here?
2: Yeah.
1: You know, so that, that, and that's what I get back to training, mm. you know, or complacency. That, to me, is complacency. It's laziness, mm. Mm.
0: You know? Or um, grandstanding.
1: That shouldn't happen. But. Mm. On the other side, on the flip side, I, I was fortunate enough to go and train New York City uh, ESU uh, tactical police SWAT units uh, last year, mm. and I was involved in one of their operations where they go into New York City. Mm. Now, I won't tell you the name of the team, but what mm. I can tell you is it is a very heavy gunned up team,
2: mm. uh,
1: and it goes into the city of New South Wales, to up uh, New South Wales, New York, mm. to all the hotspots for that day. And it walks around, and it's got a dog team, it's got mm. a full uh, assault team, all those type of things. And what was interesting about it, and this is where I go back to, um, we don't live in a culture of guns, is that this whole team debussed. And Bram, you know this as well as I do. Think you know a twelve-man tactical assault group element walking around the streets
0: of Sydney? Oh God, it would be a sideshow.
1: Kind of raises an eye, mm. you know. Mm. Um, but this didn't. It was absolutely phenomenal.
0: You're not referring to the time that I took all the snipers into the city and didn't an exercise and created a little bit of a, okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's, and it didn't.
1: It didn't raise an eye yeah. to the civil population. It was a normal thing that they see on a daily basis. Yeah. That's when you need to be scared Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because, yeah. because I think, no, right now we are getting complacent. Now mm. we
0: are, um, yeah, I'll use complacent because. We've gone far to- too, we've gone too far away from, I mean, it takes a. Oh, God, I don't want to get drawn into this. It takes a person with a gun to stop a person with a gun.
1: Anyway. <laughs> don't say that. You didn't yeah. say that. No. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm I mean, comfortable you're, around you're, guns you're because I grew up with them. But so.
1: um, yeah, I think, um, mm. I think that's a debate that will continue to, to grow. Mm. I know it's a, an ongoing debate in the US. Look, I think, yeah, and, you know, the thing that, that really annoys me if we were talking about those type of things and regulation mm. is it's not nation, nationwide. It's not national regulation. It's Mm. state-based regulation.
2: Mm.
1: That's the thing that frustrates me about um, licensing in Australia, in particular if it was gun licensing, security licensing, um, that type of thing. It's just that that's a frustrating thing because it's not national based.
0: Got it. Right. All right, man. Hey, thanks very much for being on the the Warrior U podcast and for being one of the mentors on the the website. I know that heaps of people have gained a lot from – talking directly to you about decisions that they want to make with their careers and the like. And as you know, the, you know, the whole warrior you concept is slowly morphing and changing because we've now got, you know, people in industry, people in sport, you know, entrepreneurs who are all looking to gain something from, from the previous training that we've done and and the experiences that we've had. And so we're 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 changing to accommodate that as we go. So we're still going to be helping people join the ADF, but we've found that it's a very enjoyable pursuit to help people be what better than what they were yesterday and provide them with a performance advantage. So I wanna thank you, Reese, for all your time and effort that has so far gone unpaid.
1: no worries mate thanks for the invite always a pleasure never a chore
0: oh nice all right mate i'll catch up with you next time